Sorry about that. I turned it off instead of turning it on. This morning we're going to conclude our thematic study of Genesis chapter 1 through 11. This study we've been calling Beginnings because in it we've been examining the origins of some of our, our many aspects, at least, of our theology. And this morning we're going to turn our attention to the last great event in the first part of Genesis before we introduce Abraham. And that event is recorded in the first nine verses of Genesis 11, and it focuses on the construction of the Tower of Babel. But before we get there, let me tell you about the guy that was stranded on a desert island for a number of years before he was finally rescued. And one of his rescuers noticed that he had three huts constructed on the island and asked him, what's the first hut for? And the man said, well, that, that's my house. And he said, well, what's the second hut for? He said, oh, that, that's my church. And, he, and then the rescuer said, well, what's that third hut for? He said, oh, that's where I used to go to church. <laughs> and the thing is, oftentimes when it comes to religious matters, we are known more for what divides us than what unites us. And I think that's the case with the Tower of Babel. The one detail of the Tower of Babel narrative that most people know is that it initiated the division of mankind through the creation of multiple languages. And therefore, we are beautifully diverse with different nationalities and different cultures, all because of what happened at Babel. But I think Babel addresses more than just the beginning of language. I think it addresses the beginning of community. And because of that, I think it has something to teach the church about being one people. So read with me again Genesis chapter 11 in those first four verses. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And, people, as, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And at first glance, when you look at this description of the Tower of Babel and the people that built it, it almost feels idealistic. These people are the epitome of unity. Not only are they united around a common language, but they're also, they're also united around a common location and a common purpose. But in the end, their unity is not praised. It's actually punished. Because according to verses 5 through 8, God came down to see this tower. And after acknowledging that nothing they propose to do henceforth will be impossible for them, the Lord decided that he needed to conduct an intervention. He confused their language and thereby caused them to cease building the city and disperse them over the face of the earth. And the question that everybody wants the answer to is, why was God offended by the construction of the Tower of Babel? Well, some contend that God was offended by this construction and scattered the people because of their disobedience. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1, the very first command ever given to mankind was to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. But then God decided to blot out man because mankind's wickedness had grown so great. 
And so he sends the flood, but spares Noah and his family. And now Noah and his family are able to leave the ark, but the earth is not filled. And so if you look at Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1, the command is reissued this time to Noah and his descendants. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the Babel builders are our descendants of Noah. And so this command that's given to Noah and his sons is inherited by them. It's their responsibility now to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so since they were unwilling to disperse, since they were unwilling to spread out, and st- st- since they wanted to stay localized together, they were failing at the mission to fill the earth. And that becomes evident because the consequence they experience at Babel after their language is confused is that God disperses them according to verse 8. So there is a, a degree to which their failure is rooted in their disobedience. That God is offended because of their disobedience, but that may not be all of it. Because others contend that God scattered them because of their pride. Look again at their reasoning for constructing this tower. It appears in verse 4 where they say, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Did you catch all those personal pronouns? The desire was to make a name for themselves. And from our vantage point, that obviously sounds arrogant. It sounds like they want to be feared, or they want to be remembered, or they want to be glorified. From the language of this text, it's quite obvious that the Babel builders are only concerned about the Babel builders. Their mission wasn't to bring glory to God. It was to bring glory to themselves. And so we must conclude that part of their sin is also their focus on self-glorification, their personal pride that becomes evident in the reasoning for building this tower. But it may be even more than that. It may be that God even scattered them because of their blasphemy. The building they were constructing was most likely a ziggurat. That's Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T. One of these still exists, well, a few of these still exist today in modern Iraq. This is the ziggurat of Ur, still preserved today. It's not a tower in the sense that we think of, but in Mesopotamia, where these people were located, this was the tallest structure they made. It was a pyramid-like structure, but unlike those pyramids in Egypt, it wasn't a grandiose mausoleum. It was part of a temple complex. And it's constructed out of the same materials that Scripture says they use. And the purpose of it was to provide a staircase to the heavens. It was a building designed with the intent of allowing the deity to descend to earth to bless the people. The most unique feature is that at the top of the ziggurat, they would build a room. It would have a bed and a table, and they would put food on it every day. It was designed so that the deity, upon his descent from heaven, would have a place to rest and a place to eat. 
Do you find something wrong with that? In essence, the builders of structures such as this designed their building because they began to envision their God in human terms. They degraded him by portraying him as having needs. And anytime we degrade, anytime we demean, anytime we reduce God, we're guilty of blasphemy. In fact, that's why the religious leaders took issue with Jesus. That's why they claimed he was blasphemous. Because he would say, I and the Father are one. They looked at Jesus and said, you're a man, and you just equated God to yourself. That means you're reducing God, therefore you've committed blasphemy. They did not understand that he was God, and therefore he was speaking truth. Anytime we reduce, demean, degrade, ridicule God, we have blasphemed. And this building, whose intention was to make God so little that he had human needs, communicated such blasphemy. Let's remember that in Acts chapter 17, verse 24 through 25, Paul declared, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And so there is a real sense in which this structure, this structure was blaspheming God, because it was designed to accommodate his needs. And he has none. So maybe God was offended by their disobedience. Maybe God was offended by their pride. Or maybe God was offended by their blasphemy. Or maybe it was a combination of all three. We may not know exactly why God was offended, but we do know that there are some lessons we can learn from the Tower of Babel about community. We're going to keep it real simple from here on forward. Just two things. Number one, when we look at this story, when we look at the Tower of Babel, the first thing that should stand out to us is that unity is powerful. Did you notice that in the text? When God descended from heaven and looked at the tower and looked at what they had done, he said this, Behold, they are one people. They have all one language, and this is only the beginning, the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. That statement stands out to me because in the Bible, the realm of the impossible is usually reserved for God alone. Do you remember what Gabriel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1? When she questioned how she was going to be able to bear a son, Gabriel said, Luke chapter 1, verse 37, nothing will be impossible for God. And do you remember what Jesus said after his interaction with the rich young ruler and the disciples asked, well, who can be saved if this guy can't? Jesus declared in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, with God, all things are possible. And do you remember what Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane before he ever said, remove this cup from me? It's in Luke's gospel. It's in Luke chapter 22. And it's, no, I'm sorry, it's in Mark's gospel. Mark chapter 14, verse 36, where he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. 
we're used to God handling the impossible. We're not used to God declaring that the impossible is possible for us. But yet, in the context of the Tower of Babel and the unity that they had in that moment, God looked at it and said, nothing will be impossible for them. God's own words indicated that mankind's unity made impossible possible for them. And the implication is that when people are united, they have unbridled potential. Maybe that's why in one of his last conversations with the apostles, Jesus prayed this prayer in John chapter 17, verse 20 and 21. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus prayed for his followers then and in the future to all be one. That's a prayer for unity. And then he indicated that the reason he wanted them to be united was so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He indicated that unity of believers serves as evidence for the deity of him. He indicated that unity had the power to do something that neither love nor faith nor hope had the capacity to do. Unity is the only trait, the only trait identified in the Bible that has the power to declare to the world that Jesus is the Christ. The only trait that you and I can exhibit that will declare that Jesus is the Christ. And that's why the church is repeatedly instructed to be unified. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 16, Paul instructed the church to live in harmony with one another. And Paul called on the church, Christians in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10 to agree with one another so that there will be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same judgment. And then to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul urged the church to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2, he told the Christians in Philippi to be of the same mind, to have the same love, to be in full accord and in one mind. And then Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 8, he instructed his readers to have unity of mind. You see, unity is emphasized over and over again in the Bible. And it's because unity is so very powerful. As I was preparing this lesson, I came across an article about termites. I know you're so excited to hear this. For you and I, termites are a negative creature. We don't want to be around them. We don't want anything to do with them. Unless you're Glenn Ramsey, you can't stand termites. But if you go over to Africa, you'll come across a structure like this. A termite mound that reaches up to 30 feet in the air. Now, I want you to think about that. In this picture, you can see that this termite mound is taller than a giraffe and taller than the trees. What's so fascinating is that these termite mounds, which can reach up to 30 feet in height, 
are the largest structures built by any non-human animal. The proportion between a termite and the size of these mounds would be as if we were to build structures twice the size of the Burj Khalifa, which is the tallest building in the world, standing at 2,722 feet. So we would have to build structures that, that are taller than 5,000 feet in order to have a proportional sized structure to the termites. And it's not just the height of these, these structures that's amazing. It's their construction. They have tunnels, passageways, chambers, galleries, archways, and spiral staircases. Termites have spiral staircases. Have you thought about that before? And they move, they excavate large amounts of debris. According to the article, in the course of a year, 11 pounds of termites can move about 364 pounds of dirt and 3,300 pounds of water. And they do all of this without any centralized planning. In fact, it's been determined in research, or it's generally agreed upon based on research, that individual termites are not particularly intelligent, they lack memory, and the ability to learn. The article says that if you put a few termites in a petri dish, they wander around aimlessly. You put in 40, and they start stampeding around the dish's perimeter like a herd. But put enough termites together in the right conditions, and they will build you a cathedral. The point is that the termites have learned the power of unity. The question is, have we? You go back to the first century. Paul and John are arrested by the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 3. They stand before the Sanhedrin, and this group of religious leaders tells them, you can't say anything in Jesus' name anymore. Peter says, that ain't happening. And we're told that those religious leaders of the day took note that they were uncommon uneducated men. And the book of Acts will tell us that they turned the world upside down. Individually, we might not be very intelligent, very gifted, or very strong. But collectively, God's word says there's nothing we can't do for the kingdom. Do we believe that? God said that those Tower of Babel builders would have nothing impossible for them. Shouldn't we start living as though there's nothing impossible for the kingdom of God if we will just be united? But we do need to offer a caveat here. Because although unity is powerful, we also have to admit that humility is essential. See, the reason God intervened at Babel is not because he disliked their unity, but because their unity lacked humility. Humility is a modest or low view of one's own importance. And in the context of the Tower of Babel, humility was missing on multiple fronts. Those builders lacked humility because they weren't surrendering to the the, the command of God to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. 
Those builders lacked humility because they were more concerned about making a name for themselves than they were about making a name for the Lord. And those builders lacked humility because they were reducing God to their level instead of elevating Him to His. You look at the Tower of Babel and humility is missing from the equation. That's ultimately what led God to intervene. And then if you return to Jesus' prayer in the garden in John chapter 17, notice that he doesn't just pray for believers to be united with each other. He also prays for believers to be united with him and the Father. He says that they also may be in us. He's communicating unity between each other and community with him. Now, why does that matter? See, in order for someone to be united with Jesus, he or she has to surrender to the will of Jesus. Matthew chapter 16, verse 24 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That means that if anyone wants to be a disciple, if anyone wants to be a believer, if anyone wants to be united with Christ, then he or she has to give up their own agenda and submit to his agenda. And that's typically why we lack humility. We don't want to give up our interests, our wills, our objectives, or our wants. We have an agenda for our lives. Maybe it's to make money. Maybe it's to be happy. Maybe it's to be well-liked. Maybe it's to be successful or to travel the world or whatever it is. And those aren't necessarily bad things or wrong agendas. But any time our agendas take precedence over God's agenda, it prevents us from being united with Him. We have to remember that we're called to seek first the kingdom of God, not seek first Kyle's kingdom or seek first your kingdom. It's seek first His kingdom. Whenever we fall outside that parameter, we've sinned against God. And when our own agendas take center stage, we stop imitating Christ. Do you remember what Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 says? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus became the epitome of humility when he was willing to give up his divinity. Let me say that again. Jesus became the epitome of humility when he was willing to give up his divinity. He did not say, hey, God, I'm too good for this mission. I'm equal to you. I should stay up here in the throne room. No. Jesus said, I'm willing to go. I'm willing to give up some of these divine attributes so that I can help save those people down there who just can't do this on their own. He set aside certain divine attributes just so he could put on this silly flesh thing and live out life like you and I, but to do it perfectly. Jesus showed us what humility entails, and it means not having your own agenda, but accepting God's agenda and following it. And we're called in this very passage, in the fifth verse of Philippians chapter 2, to have the same mindset or the same attitude. 
How are we doing at that? How many of us approach the church, approach the kingdom with our own agendas, with, with our own wills, with our own objectives? And we try to impose those on God's kingdom instead of surrendering them to his kingdom. See, when it comes to our agendas, we need to take a Burger King approach. Now, I know you don't know what I'm talking about yet. I came across this, though. In 2020, during the height of the pandemic, the Burger King in England post tweeted this message out to its followers. It was during the midst of lockdown. And they said, order from McDonald's. We never thought we'd be asking you to do this, just like we never thought we'd be encouraging you to order from KFC, Subway, Domino's Pizza, Pizza Hut, Five Guys, Taco Bell, Papa John's, or any of the other independent food outlets, too numerous to mention here. In short, order from any of our sister food chains, fast or not so fast. We never thought we'd be asking you to do this, but restaurants employing thousands of staff really need your support at the moment. So if you want to help, keep treating yourself to tasty meals through home delivery, takeaway, or drive through Getting a Whopper is always best, but ordering a Big Mac is also not such a bad thing. First thing I notice is they don't, they don't mention Chick-fil-A. <laughs> because they know everybody go to Chick-fil-A. But here's a company whose chief competitor, the competitor they're encouraging people to go to because they understood the common objective was more important than their own. They understood that their personal agenda as a company was not as big of a deal as the bigger agenda. The restaurant that tells you to have it your way is saying it's okay not to have our way. Now, can you do that? When it comes to the kingdom of God, can you take that approach? That my agenda doesn't matter. Only his does. That's true unity. And humility is what it takes to get there. At the outset of this lesson, I mentioned that we are a diverse world because of the events that take place at Babel. But diversity is not meant to be divisive. While God initiated the circumstances that lead to our diversity, he also initiated the circumstances that will lead to our ultimate unity. In the very next chapter of Genesis, God declares that through Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And that was accomplished through Jesus Christ, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And the point is that what happened at Babel will be reversed because of what happened at Calvary. And when Christ returns, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord then those who are united with him in a death like his will also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And based on John's vision and revelation, those will gather in heaven as a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In heaven, the true 
power of unity will be observed. The question we have to ask ourselves today is are we willing to start living like it's heaven now? Because the only way to do that is to be a people who promote and pursue unity. This morning we turn to the Tower of Babel, our last event in the series that take place in Genesis chapter 1 through 11. Our last study in this series we call Beginnings. And from the Tower of Babel, we discover the origins of true community revolving around unity and humility. Which one do you need to work on today? Do you need to work on building more relationships that are unified within the church? Or do you need to work on being more humble and pursuing his agenda instead of your own? This morning, if you have a need to respond to the invitation to make sure that you are right with the Lord, then we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.